you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. There was a time in college that I felt like my heart had grown a little cold in reaching those who did not know Christ. Now I wanted to care, um, and I knew I should care, um, but my actions, when I looked at my actions and I could just kind of feel my heart, I knew it was otherwise. Um, And so I actually went to my pastor and I I confessed this. I said, I don't really care for the lost. And uh, so he did the typical thing a pastor does. He said, hey, read this. Um, you, know, you hate that when you, you, know, you go and you ask for advice and they always, you always get a book. You know? And I, I'm, I'm guilty. I do that all the time. You know? and, uh, but the Lord actually, you know, he, he said, you, you need to read this. And what he, what he told me, though, he didn't give me a book. He gave me a passage of Scripture. And it's the text we're looking at tonight in Luke 8. And he said, I just want you to read that and ask God to give you ears to hear that man's cry. Ask God to give you ears to hear that man's cry. And so I read it, and honestly, it didn't help that much. Um, but over and over, the Lord kept bringing it to remembrance. And, uh, and I kept going back to it as the weeks went on. And uh, finally, it began opening up to me, or I, I guess I should say my heart began opening up to this scripture. And it has shaped much of how I view ministry and the Lord has used it in my life um, to give me a heart for the lost. I want to read chapter 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house But among the tombs, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but He would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes, they asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, 
return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Pray with me. Lord God, I ask that you would open our hearts to your word. Give me clarity of mind. Clarity of speech. As I try to communicate these truths. It is beyond my ability to do so. So Lord, I ask that my words would fall to the ground and blow away. That they would not be remembered anymore. But Lord, let your words remain. And may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Um, We've been looking at the book of Luke now for the last 21 weeks. Um, And over the past few weeks, we have seen the crowds that have been following Jesus grow. Um, Greater and greater crowds begin following him. Earlier in this chapter, um, Luke tells us that a great crowd was following Jesus and people from town after town were coming to him. Verse 19 tells us that there were so many people around Jesus, his own mother and brother couldn't even get to him because there were such enormous crowds. And and when the stories after this, a woman sneaks up to Jesus and touches him and she's healed and Jesus stops and says, somebody touched me. And the disciples go, well, of course, everybody's touching you. Everybody's packed in around you, Jesus. The disciples probably were more like bodyguards at times. Times and they were actually disciples, just trying to almost protect Jesus from being smothered by the multitudes that were coming to him. You might say that Jesus had reached the pinnacle of his ministry. He's wildly popular, he's had enormous success. And so I find it very interesting to see what Jesus does next at this moment in his ministry. So, when the crowds are at the greatest, we saw last week he confuses them all with parables. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. Interesting. And then he tells his disciples, okay, let's get in a boat and let's leave the masses. Let's let's go to the other side of the lake. And you just got to ask, well, why would, why would you leave where you were hugely popular and you were having incredible success? What, what possibly could be drawing Jesus to leave this? And it's not bigger venues. It's not to reach bigger crowds. He didn't even go to another Jewish city. He went to a Gentile region that was known for raising pigs. And the disciples had to know that the moment that they reached this region, they would be considered ceremonially defiled and unclean. They went to a very remote region where there's very few people. And these people here, they were Gentiles, they weren't expecting a Messiah. They didn't know the Scriptures. And he did this all in order to find and to heal one man. Just one. We've grown up hearing stories about, you know, Jesus is the good shepherd. He, the good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. You see this here. He is leaving the multitudes, the thousands, and he's going after one. This means that if Jesus was sitting next to me at the University of Georgia in my 
speech communications classes, he would have failed. He would have failed mass communication classes, which, you know, talk about uh, maximizing all of your opportunities. He would have also failed my church leadership classes that I had to take at Beeson. Um, because you don't do this. No, you're, you're taught to strike while the iron is hot, to keep the momentum going. And phrases like you need to maximize your efforts. Uh, or the phrases like the best way to reach one is to reach the multitude, which is full of ones. That's how the kingdom of God grows, apparently. But not according to Jesus. I've met a lot of people who who really want to make a difference in their lives, which is a good thing. I, ho- I hope people want to make a difference in their lives, with their lives. But usually they have something in mind. Uh, they're thinking, you know, um, I want to do something big for the Lord. You know, I want, to, I want to do something to reach out and to help a lot of people. And there's nothing wrong with, with wanting that. That's good. But don't forget about your neighbor who might be hurting. Uh, don't forget about that, you know, really awkward coworker that everybody kind of ignores when they actually walk into the room or they try to avoid any conversation. Don't, don't ignore that person. Don't forget about the single mom that you might know who is breaking under the strain of trying to raise kids and work. And it's easy to forget and to pass by such individuals when you're trying to make a big difference with your life. Don't do it. I find it very interesting that Satan, up to this point, never tries to prevent Jesus from going to any of the other places he has gone. He doesn't try to prevent Jesus from going to all these places where he has preached and he's performed miracles to the masses. You, you don't see Satan preventing him from going to Nazareth or to Capernaum or to you know, the, the town of Nain. But when Jesus tries to go to one little remote region to reach one forgotten man, Satan throws everything at Jesus here. We didn't read the story before this about Jesus getting in the boat and and going over to this place and this huge storm coming up. And this wasn't just any storm that happened. These were a storm that seasoned sailors were terrified of. They knew they were going to drown. And this was a, not a normal storm, this was a supernatural storm. And we know this, look at verse 24. The disciples went and they woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased and there was calm. He rebuked them. Rebuking wind and waves is a very unusual term. You don't do this. All throughout scripture, the word rebuke is used for rebuking demons, rebuking evil forces. And Jesus, he sees this storm as something supernatural and he rebukes it. And it quits its howl and its fury. And it's a precursor of what's about to come when he goes to the shore and he finds a man and he rebukes the demon and he calms the storm in that man's life. But evil forces want to stop Jesus from reaching this one man. You would think it'd be the opposite way. You would think that Satan, I mean, Jesus, you want to leave the masses? You want to leave 
You want to quit doing all these miracles over here and go to this one little region? Smooth sailing. Here, I'll get some wind, you know, and we'll get you there even quicker. Yeah, absolutely. Leave the masses. Waste your life on that one forgotten little individual over there. Go. You would think if anything, Satan would be helping Jesus to this point. But it's the opposite. He's doing everything in his power to keep Jesus from going to one man. Just one. And Satan is going to do anything and everything. He's going to throw everything at you when he sees you pursuing one. I mean, really pursuing somebody. He's going to say, you are way too busy. You don't have the time for this. Oh, you're in no position to do this. You're, you're, not, you're not good enough to do this. He's going to try to do things to scare you. Don't listen to him. He's going to tell you, what a waste of time. That's a hopeless case. Don't listen to him. To be perfectly blunt, though actually Satan doesn't really have to do anything for most of us. Just look at, you know, what exactly has he had to throw at you to keep you from reaching your neighbor? To keep you from even walking across the street? What exactly has he had to throw your way to keep you from talking to that one person in the office who you know is dying, but they're so awkward? Has has he had to throw a lot your way? Usually it's just a little distraction that we provide ourselves. Too busy. Click on some entertainment. Do something. And let that guy perish. I'm amazed um, at how the Christian community loves to do mission trips, which we do need to love to do mission trips. It's a good thing. But I think what can get mixed up in that sometimes is actually the need to do something great. The need to have a big platform to do spectacular things. And how we will put all this time and this prayer in that, and yet we will forget our neighbor. We will forget the one. Not Jesus. Let's take a closer look at this man that Jesus goes to see. Well, first off, he's possessed by a demon. Um, I guess I should say, don't, don't make the mistake of instantly kind of saying, oh, that's, you know, first century superstition. Um, they, were, they were attributing everything to demons. Um, they weren't. If, if you go through the Gospels, the Gospel writers make clear distinction between illnesses and demon possession. You know, for instance, there might be times where, say, Jesus healed a deaf person. Other times it might be he cast out a demon that was causing the deafness. They make a distinction. They don't see demons behind every single illness or sickness. So this is unique here. This man is definitely possessed. He's given up wearing clothes. He lives in the tombs. Tombs that would have been carved out in the hillside. They're basically caves here that would have been outside of the village. Tombs are for dead people. They're not for the living people, but this man, he considers himself as having no life whatsoever. He, he has more in common with a dead person than someone who is alive. He hated himself. 
Every single day was just another experience of pain and torture. The Gospel of Mark tells us that he would actually pick up stones and he would hit himself and he would just start cutting himself because he hated himself. And he would cry out all night. I mean, can you imagine living in, in, in the village and, and hearing from the tombs a man screaming out in pain, howling almost every single night for help? And you can't do anything? Can you imagine the shame that this guy felt? <laughs> It's probably what made him flee to the hills. He just felt so much shame. He wanted to live in isolation where nobody else would live. And so he he moved away from anybody who might try to help him. You know, likely, I'm sure people first tried to help this man. But man, he's a hard case. He just keeps getting worse. And as he kept getting worse, he would isolate himself, himself more and more. Now, I know for a number of us, you know, as we've described this kind of demon-possessed man, it's just really weird. And it, it is weird from a, you know, I, I guess I'd say from a Western modern perspective, um, to see somebody like that. It makes for a good Halloween story. That's why I kept thinking, you know, this is a fantastic, you know, a howling man in the, um, out in the tombs. Next time, you know, somebody comes trick-or-treating, just read them this story. It's even more graphic in Mark chapter 5. I I think you're you're mistaken, though, if if you don't believe that evil has a supernaturalness to it. If you don't believe in demonic forces or if you don't believe in Satan. If you don't believe that there's, um, there's a personality behind evil then and a supernaturalness to it, then you're... How are you going to deal with the evil in this life? What what are your solutions going to be? You you know, for the last 100 years or so, actually about 150 years, the the tendency has been to try to humanize all of evil. All of evil has a very human source. Therefore, its solution, the cure for it, is going to be a very human solution. And, And so there's been all these different approaches as to how we deal with the evil. And so you have this psychological approach to evil in your life. That says, okay, the reason there's this evil in your life is, you know, you, maybe you were abused as a child. You had a bad father or people didn't love you. It was a human cause. Therefore, there's a human solution. Counseling. Go to counseling and that's how you're going to overcome this. There could be a sociological approach to getting rid of evil or trying to, to cure evil. In which it sees evil as racism or poverty. And that's a very human caused Evil, And so the solution is very human-caused solution. You would do things like education. Um, you would have some kind of legislation that could change things. There's a physiological approach to evil that might say that, you know, we're just programmed to do bad things. It's, it's in our chemistry. Evolution has led us, you know, to be bigger and badder. Only the violent will survive. And so you come up with chemical solutions to evil. And and, uh, all of these might help to some degree. But they don't actually get rid of evil. 
When you read this story, especially in Mark's account, he keeps saying, no one can help this man. No one can bind this man. No one can do anything. They keep trying human solution after human solution. But this isn't a human problem. This is a transcendent evil. And so they can't fix it. No one can. And I know that each of you have probably felt this some in your lives as well. There's something. There's some demons you have that you need to exercise. Some bad habits that you just can't kick no matter what you do, no matter what you try. Maybe there's some irrational fears that you have. That no matter what you do in your life, you absolutely can't get rid of these irrational fears. They keep coming up. They keep popping up. There's these evil impulses and desires that might come up to you that you just can't help but entertain and follow through on. What do you do with those? You know, we could, we could go to counseling, and, and like any good counselor, they're going to listen to you, and maybe they'll point out the problem. You know, you have hatred in your life. There's your problem. You're like, well, it was great. Well, what do I do with it? And every good counselor will say, well, what do you think you should do with it? You know, that's, that's what good counselors do, is they just ask questions. They can identify the problem, but they can't get you out of it. Jesus can get you out of this. Evil has a supernatural quality to it. It cannot be explained through just human causes. And when that evil is not dealt with in your life, it is going to grow. These demonic influences in this man's life begin growing and growing and growing. There's this cycle in his life. You know, he occasionally he has moments of clarity. You know, maybe he, he, he can feel the sunshine and a little warmth and and some focused thoughts, and he's feeling not too bad. And in those moments, people would come, and they'd bind him. They would bind him. They were probably doing this out of compassion. We don't want him to hurt himself. They'd bind him. But then these demonic presence, they would, they would come on him again, and he'd break the, they'd break the chains, and he'd run out into the wilderness again. And Mark says that he was increasingly do this, doing this so they could no longer bind him. They once were able to, but now they couldn't bind him anymore. There was no hope for this man. Now, when this man saw Jesus, he's waiting for him at the shore. The Gospel of Mark says that he actually ran up to Jesus, which is really interesting because he has been running away from people for a long time now. Jesus comes and he runs up to Jesus and he's waiting for him. He's somehow drawn to him. Yet he's also going to be repulsed by him. It's really interesting. He's drawn to Jesus, yet he's repulsed by Jesus At the same time, he runs up and he says, son of the most high God, what do you want to do with me? Don't torment me. Don't torment me. Now, this exorcism is unlike any other in Scripture. Read it again when you get home. Compare it to other ones. It is unlike any other one in Scripture. Because every other time Jesus goes up, meets a demon, he says, go. Boom, gone. Rebuke. Gone. There's no dialogue. There's no conversations. There's no, I mean, but here Jesus actually slows down this exorcism. He begins talking with this man. And it's really unusual. If you, sometimes he addresses the man, and sometimes he addresses the demons. It switches. Sometimes it says he told him, and sometimes it says they said, and sometimes it says he said. And what you're, you're getting here is this very divided heart. 
Sometimes it's this man. Sometimes it's the demonic forces overcoming this man. But his heart is very fractured. His will is very fractured. It's pulling him in thousands of directions. Actually, 6,000. Jesus asked him, what is his name? He addresses the man, not the demons here. What is your name? And he says, Legion. Which is a military term, meaning 6,000. Actually, it's like 6,128 or something like that. But about 6,000. I mean, could you imagine having 6,000 different impulses and, and desires throwing you in all different directions? C.S. Lewis, I put this quote in your uh, worship guide in the front page. In writing about his life just before conversion, he said, For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me. A zoo of lust. A bedlam of ambitions. A nursery of fears. A harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. You know, perhaps if we examined ourselves with the same practical purpose, we might find the same. And this man, he desperately wanted to be delivered from this. Yet he's also scared to death to be delivered from this. He wants to be delivered, yet he doesn't. He thinks that his deliverance is going to mean judgment. That's what he thinks. This this deliverance is going to mean being tormented. But Jesus doesn't judge the man. He doesn't torment the man. He just heals. And I've seen so many people, as those who don't know the Lord, but they're so interested and they're drawn to Jesus, yet they're scared to death of Jesus because they know, they think they know what it will mean. They think it's going to mean, you know, if I, if, I, if I believe in Jesus, that means I'm judged because look at my lifestyle. And it means he's going to condemn me. He's not going to love me. He's going to do all these things. He's going to torment me. He's not. He forgives. He heals. Jesus deals with this man differently than, than anyone ever has. He doesn't offer a human solution. He doesn't say, okay, come here. You know what your problem is? We need some bigger chains. Can you all help me get some bigger chains and, you know, chains this guy can't break through? You know what I need to do? I need to tell you all the things you're doing wrong in your life. Let me me give you some more law and just kind of heap it on you. It's not what this man needs and it's not what Jesus gives. He doesn't throw moral rules down this man's throat. He just delivers the man. He delivers him. Only Jesus can deal with those evil forces in our lives. Only Jesus is the one who can set us free from that. And it's interesting, this this man, he was just, he was so scared of being tormented, but instead Jesus makes him a new person and he gives him a new mission. I I love it. You have, going into this, um, you have all these beggings. Uh, You have uh, the, the demons, they beg Jesus Please don't, you know, throw us into the abyss. And Jesus says, okay. Um, Then you have the townspeople begging Jesus, leave us. And he goes, well, okay, I'll leave you. And then you have this man delivered. And he says, Jesus, I beg you, can I go with you? And he goes, absolutely not. No way. I'm giving you a new mission. And it's to declare what the Lord has done in your life. That's your mission. That's why I gave you life. 
is to declare that. And for everybody who has been healed by Jesus, that is our mission. To declare how much the Lord has done for us. You know, I love what Jesus asked the disciples to do here. Did did you see it and read it and what what Jesus asked the disciples to do? You're not going to find anything. The only thing that he asked the disciples to do was to get in a boat and take them to the other side of the lake. And he said, "I'll, I'll take care of the healing this person. I'll take care of getting rid of the demons. I'll take care of this. All I want you to do is bring me to him. That's your mission. Take me to lonely, hurting people. Don't be thinking, okay, how am I going to help them? How am I going to do this? This is a hopeless case. Nobody's been able to fix this person. Jesus says, forget that. Take me to that person and let me deal with them. Quit throwing out all of those excuses. Quit trying to say, well, I want to be on a bigger venue, a bigger platform. I want to do all these great things. And Jesus is saying, take me to that person. That one person. Take me to him. Let me heal him. That's our role as disciples. And if you are, if you identify in this story with that person, I don't care how much you are, you are knee deep or neck deep in sin, how addicted you are, the Lord can heal you. And we're going to celebrate that as we, as we look at the table behind us and we are partake of the Lord's Supper. You know, there, evil had to be dealt with. I mean, why does Jesus have all these, this power over evil? How can he exercise demons out of people's lives? Why is it that he could go to this man and not torment him and not judge him? It's because he took on evil. That's what we celebrate in this meal. It's because Jesus lived a perfect life and he went to the cross and he said, do your worst to me. Do it. Let the evil fall on me. And he looked at his father and he said, Father, don't judge that man. Don't judge that demoniac. Don't judge that person there. Don't judge that addict. Don't judge that, uh, that child abuser. Don't judge that uh, adulterer. Don't judge that person over there who has placed their faith in me. Don't judge them. Judge me. Let your wrath fall on me. That's how Jesus dealt with evil. And I know it sounds bizarre. It sounds strange to talk about how the death of Jesus can appease the wrath of God. But that is what he did. And that's what we celebrate in this meal. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had a meal with his disciples and he, he got bread and he, he said, this is my body. And then he said, this is my body broken for you. Then he got the wine, and he said, this wine is my blood poured out for you. And he said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, remembering me, you proclaim my death till I come again. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate this meal and being reminded of the time when Jesus triumphed 
over evil. And this table here, it's not a Baptist table or a Methodist or Presbyterian table. This table's for all those, all baptized believers who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Don't be sitting there thinking, well, I've got to get my life all together. I've got to do all this before I come. No. No. Jesus has done the work that you couldn't do. You repent of any known sin. You confess that known sin. And you trust Jesus and his righteousness. And so as the Lord leads you, come. Pray with me. Lord, I feel like so often we approach the evils in our lives with with chains and rules. And what we need is deliverance. We need to be forgiven. Thank you for providing that. And Lord, I also feel that there's so much in us that wants to be great, wants to do amazing things. And we ignore the cries of the people who are in anguish around us. Either because we think they're a hopeless case, or we just don't want to be around them, or we just don't know what we would do. And all you're saying is, take me to them. Take me to them. And let me heal them. This week, God, I ask that we would hear your call to do that, and we would not disobey. Thank you for this table and giving us a way to remember your work on the cross. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.